It's a strange world we live in now. When you go to the movies or turn on your TV, you might notice the main character on screen is either morally ambiguous or even downright evil. Rather than dismissing any form of visual media like this, it's worthwhile unpacking the journeys these characters take and how their flaws may be similar to some of ours. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Signs of the Times Radio is back for another week. My name is Daniel Kubedek, and joining me today is Ryan Stanton. How you doing, my brother? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Just getting towards the end of the year, and I'm looking forward to heading home to see the family, finally. I guess things must not be too bad on your end, because you have had time to watch some TV shows. Yeah, if, if there's one thing lockdown did, it, it was, it gave, it gave me plenty of time to watch and catch up on some old and new shows. Yeah. Well, that's good because your insight into media and cultural trends is very good and in-depth and analytical. You know, our readers may have come across your articles this year and many of them will have enjoyed them, as has been the feedback. So, well, thank you, first of all, for, for all the work you've done for us this year. For anybody who wants to catch up on Ryan's articles, they're on our website. That sounds like a way to end this podcast off, but <laughs> we're actually only getting started because, Ryan, to be honest, man, it was when I was a primary school kid, right? There was this new Star Wars game coming out called The Force Unleashed. Now, oh, yeah. there's been plenty of Star Wars games that have come out in the past. This one was unique, though, because it was like one of the first times in Star Wars history where you could play as the bad guy, which was in the Star Wars world is called Sith. You know, the b- good guys are the Jedi, the bad guys are the Sith. And so you could play as the bad guy. And because you're the bad guy, you automatically have all these superpowers and abilities that are like way better than being the good guy as far as the mm. Jedi. I, I, re- I remember the trailer for that. It showed your main character like pulling down Star Destroyer from orbit, and it was like, whoa, we've never seen that before. Like, this guy is so tough and so powerful, and, like, that's, like, because he's, like, a Sith and he has no limits sort of thing. Yeah, whereas the Jedi were always, I don't know, once you compare it against this game, it's like they're the boring vanilla guys who have much weaker powers and definitely wouldn't be able to do what this guy's doing. So pretty much, mm. like, around the time that this game was coming out, I go into this news agency, and there was, like, gaming magazines there. And one of the magazines actually featured this game, and they had written there in the article, oh, we've always had this guilty pleasure about dreaming about playing as a Sith one day or being a Sith, and now we can actually do it. Now, I don't want to say that this is the first time that someone has been able to play as the bad guy or watch the bad guy, but it definitely seems like it's a trend in movies and video games at the present moment, probably becoming steadily more so. Have you noticed that to be true? Yeah, yeah. It's. I think it's something that has always been around. I, I, I definitely don't think it's something that's been invented in the past few years, the idea of, hey, maybe we can have villains or bad people or even, you know, dubiously good people as the main characters. It's been around for a long time, but 
I think it sort of has increased over the, the past, I think I would say 10, 20 years, which is really my lifetime, but like it's sort of exponentially growing over the, over that sort of time, I think. Okay. Well, let's have a look at some examples of things that have come out recently that have taken the side of the anti-hero. And maybe we need to, oh, before I even go into that, maybe we need to define what the anti-hero is. So I guess a stereotypical trait of how these stories go down, right? The main character, is he a bad guy or is he just morally ambiguous? And then in that case, most stories, I guess, in movies or video games have a villain. But who is the villain then if the bad guy is the main character? <laughs> yeah, right. And and so I think I think there's sort of a difference, right, between shows or movies or products, you know, whatever, with an anti-hero as the lead and those with a villain as the lead. I, I think the thing I think of when I think of anti-hero, right, is the the first that comes to mind as a as a comic book fan is Deadpool, right? He's a he's a character who has no problems with killing people, you know, bad behavior. You, you watch those movies, they're you know intensely full on, and that's part of the the comedy of them, right? And because he is a character with very little limits, but he's always sort of still fighting for the source of good. So so anti-heroes in my mind at least, and I think in a lot of people's minds, are sort of heroes who are not bound by the traditional sort of heroic codes of, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, we don't kill anybody, you know, but they still fight for the cause of good. Whereas shows or stories with villains as the main characters, which, you know, is especially sort of what I would argue is becoming more and more common where they're ambiguously anti-heroes and they're maybe actually just villains, you know, they're characters that aren't necessarily fighting for the cause of good. They might be fighting for the cause of self. They might be fighting for the cause of evil even sort of, but somehow there's something about them that still makes us want to watch and maybe even relate to them. In some ways, I think that the goalposts have changed also, and maybe we can discuss that because you do go into your article about the context of this phenomenon of storytelling. I was reading an article before, which was titled Why We Love Antiheroes. And that article actually listed Boba Fett as one of the antiheroes. And now there's a new TV show coming out called The Book of Boba Fett at the end of 2021, which follows this guy. This character has been around since 1980 with, with The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars universe. And pretty much he's always throughout history been this anti-hero. Like he is a bounty hunter, which means he catches people for a living and puts his morals aside in order to grab the coin. And yet in the last season of Mandalorian, I actually thought he was more like a hero because the little bit of you see of him, his, his principles and his values seemed way more upstanding than any other anti-hero you'd see in TV today. Yeah, and, and I think part of that, right, for, for Boba Fett, Boba Fett's a really interesting example of this because... When you look at the original films, he has like, I think it's something like three lines total over (laughs) Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And we don't really see much of him. We see him do one job and then, well, we think he dies, but he doesn't actually die. So so there's not really much there to define whether he's an anti-hero or an outright villain. But because people have attached themselves to this character so much, I think a lot of what has been done is sort of, especially when you look at The Mandalorian and sort of the stuff that is in what is considered official stories now. There was some that are no longer official stories. But especially when you look at what is true for the character now, 
there's been a sort of sanding down of some of his edges to, to make sure that he is very much in that mold of an anti-hero, you know, like from what I understand, the new show has him running a criminal empire, right? But the trailers are talking about him going, I want to rule through respect, not fear. So mm-hmm. it's that sort of like, he's shifting that model from, he's not a villain like Jabba the Hutt. He's trying to make something better, even if it is still a criminal empire. And I think that's what's going to be really interesting to watch in this season, because especially compared to The Mandalorian, how much of a villain is he going to be? Yeah, and while that show is happening, there's also other shows that are more morally ambiguous, even than Boba Fett. Now, one of them is one that you've been watching. I've only seen one episode, so maybe you can tell me a little bit more. It's called Succession. Now, what's the premise of this TV show, man? Oh, I love Succession. It is a fascinating show because it really is a show where there is no real character that is a hero or somebody to root for or even an anti-hero because the premise of this show is it's loosely based on people like Rupert Murdoch and his family. It is about the Roy family who is led by this patriarch, Logan Roy, who is played you know beautifully by Brian Cox. And they own this company called Waystar Royco, which is basically a big Fox, a big Disney, a big, you know, Netflix sort of type conglomerate that has a lot of power and has a lot of influence. And basically the show is all about Logan Roy, the patriarch, is getting on in years. And which of his three, well, technically four, but his three main kids is going to succeed him. Will anybody succeed him? Will he abdicate the throne or not? So it's all about succession. And what's fascinating about this show is it's about all these billionaires. And it doesn't shy away from the realities of what billionaires are and who billionaires are. And money is the root of all evil is the saying and power corrupts. And that's on full display here. These characters are self-centered, narcissistic the third season finale aired the day before we recorded this. And there's there's a moment in that uh, episode, which I, I'm not going to spoil stuff, but it just really highlighted how disconnected from real people these characters are that, you know, almost made me feel a little bit sick, even as it sort of made me laugh because it, it strikes this real fine balance of comedy and drama. And so all the characters in this show are like that, a... They seem to, various points, have little or no conscience and are just corrupt and immoral in so many respects. And yet you can't help but root for them. And that's like the real genius of the show. That's why it's really such a fascinating show for me. I think the way you described it once to me really sums it up. It's like there's something so amusing about watching rich people self-destruct in some ways. I've only watched the one episode, but just your summation of that show makes me want to go further. Now, is that the is that the only one? Or maybe even a, a foundational question there. Obviously, this show has captivated attention. I was driving through Macquarie and there was a massive electronic billboard promoting this show. So it seems to have struck a chord, even though most people wouldn't be able to identify with the situation that these characters are in as far as their wealth, let's say, the majority wouldn't be able to identify with that. So what is it about the characters or the situation they're going through that seems to be 
striking a, an amusing chord with audiences? So there's there's a couple of things going on here that I think make it so enjoyable. O- obviously, the first is that there is sort of that, like you mentioned, it's it's so fun to watch people trip themselves up. There's sort of like that guilt-free indulgence of seeing people do things that we know are unacceptable and would, would never do or hear them say those things and be in situations. One of the characters, the, the youngest son, um, is, you know, constantly saying the things that nobody would ever be caught dead saying. And the, he, he gets all the wittiest one-liners because he's just such an amoral character. And there's joy in watching that because it's, it's funny. It, it, it's enjoyable. It's maybe a bit of a guilty pleasure, but that's it. I think one of the other things, though, is that all, all stories, most stories are working on a sort of heightened state of reality, right? They're, they're never fully, truly representing reality. They're always representing aspects of reality and whatnot in ways that we can understand and relate to. And I think these shows, even though the characters are so far removed from us and our experiences and what we view as good and decent, their behaviours or their problems or their situations are still in some ways reflective of our own. There's there's a few great articles from Vox about succession and she talks about how the show is a lot about trauma and abuse and the ways that these kids even as they are evil in certain respects themselves, maybe evil is slightly too strong a word, but even as they are deeply flawed people who are committing atrocities against others, they themselves are victims of abuse in certain respects from their parents and their upbringing and their situation. That is sort of relatable. There was a tweet that I saw that was talking about like people going which succession character are you? And this this journalist responded that it's as some people talk about it like, oh, I'm totally like a Roman or I'm totally like a Shiv as a positive sort of thing. But this person was writing like, oh, no, you can definitely see yourselves in these characters. But it's not a like, oh, yeah, I'm Roman. That's awesome. It's like, a, oh, no, I'm Roman. And that's reflecting like it's allowing us to gain deeper insight into ourselves and our flaws, seeing those flaws exaggerated and made manifest on the screen. What you just said about relatability is definitely true. I mean, if we look at popular media and the characters that are shown to us on our screens, I wonder, is it because we see more of our struggles in these anti-hero type of characters that we prefer to watch them over someone who is more idealistically portrayed and Therefore, watching them is nice. I guess it it can be inspiring, but it's not really grounded in a reality that seems achievable. Is that part of the reason, do you think, as well, that we are so attracted to these kinds of of media? Yeah, yeah. I, I do think part of it is that. It's sort of like, to contrast with the relatability of it, it is also, in certain respects, more unfamiliar, right? The more we watch TV and movies, especially that follow sort of more traditional narrative structures, which you could argue a lot of these still do, the the more we become familiar with them and understanding of them, right? Like, I enjoy watching my Marvel movies. I enjoy a lot of blockbusters. But, like, you know, based on the first trailer for any of those sort of Marvel movies or whatnot, 
basically exactly how that plot is going to play out. There may be surprises about who the specific villain is or what specific personal issue they're dealing with, but you, you know the basic beats. And the moment you sort of hear them start talking about their issue, you can sort of oftentimes lay out how it's going. Because we have until recently had less stories that are explicitly dealing with these sort of more morally ambiguous or outright, what's the opposite of aspirational uh, characters, it's a bit more unknown and it's a bit more interesting for us to see how the things we see reflected in us are going to play out, right? One of the main plots in Succession is the marriage and relationship between one of the patriarchs, his daughter and her husband. And there's, there's marital complications there. And it's, it's fascinating because it's, it's very well written and it's very, you're unsure as to what direction this relationship is going to go in. Because if it was a, you know, traditional story where one of them was the hero, you could see them potentially breaking up for a bit and getting back together, sort of like, but this show isn't afraid to take some risks on these issues. And as a result, that can sort of feel more genuine. I can't speak to personally what marriages successful or otherwise feel like but i i suspect that 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 example might ring more true for others and the ways some of these characters struggle with mental health problems i can relate in certain respects to some of that because it isn't afraid to show the the difficulties that you can face with these things because it doesn't have to make sure that the character gets better by the end so he can fight the baddie sort of thing because Maybe they all are the baddies, and it allows you to sort of see these issues from a different angle. You really highlighted an incredible point, I think, about why these types of stories are of so much value. Because on paper, they seem like they're not substantial in some ways. Why would we want to watch a TV show about wealthy people doing bad things? Why would we want to watch a show like Breaking Bad about a high school teacher who then decides to go cook meth. Like that immediately seems like a moral downturn. And yet, once you follow the story all all the way through to the end, I think more than any other kinds of shows, these forms of stories encourage critical thinking. So for example, with Breaking Bad, in the beginning, you see this teacher who has cancer and his marriage is already on the rocks. And so he decides to provide for his family by making methamphetamine, which seems in the beginning, you're kind of like, well, this is insane. But at the same time, you're rooting for him because you feel bad. And what he's doing is justified. At the end of the day, he is looking to provide for his family. And yet by season five and, and the journey that it takes to get there, where he literally starts sacrificing his family and just continues to use his ventures and and justifies it in the name of his family when it's really about his own narcissism and his ego. And that in turn destroys his family and everybody around him. Once you follow with him through that journey, the the final conclusion isn't that, oh, we should all start cooking methamphetamine. It's, wow, this is an absolutely destructive path to take. Is that what you're finding with a lot of these stories? Yeah. But the other thing about it is, you understand why somebody might take that path. And I think that's another thing that we that I haven't really touched on and that is sort of only briefly touched on in my article about this that I think is is important is it, it promotes 
empathy and understanding for what we sometimes view as like clear black and white issues, which isn't to say that Breaking Bad, to use your example, makes people go, oh, yeah, like, no, I see making meth is all right. Like, I see why people would, would do it. It's, it's great. Let's go do it, right? Like, it still very clearly paints it as an ultimately destructive sort of thing. But very easily we might, we tend to paint big, broad categories of things that are good and things that are bad in, in society, right? Like, stealing is bad. But you watch a show where the main character is, like, homeless and living on the street and struggling to survive and they've got to, you know, live that hustle, so to speak. They gotta they've got to steal to survive. All of a sudden it, it really encourages you to start thinking and promote empathy towards people in some of these circumstances. Because that's the other part, right? Like some of these characters are obviously villains in the text of the story, but other times uh these shows work by taking what a society view as villainous or evil or, you know, bad, and then sort of asking us to question why we think about that and why we view it. It really seems that like there's a pretty hectic debate in here about where the line is with the black and white, because then mm. how much can things be justified? And that's the question I was asking myself while I was watching Breaking Bad. In the beginning, it's a means to an end, but by the end, it's the destruction of his family and stuff. Well, how much can we understand someone? Like, for example, to apply it into an everyday context for the everyday person. If we see someone who has undertaken a, a destructive behavior, let's say, it might not be cooking methamphetamine, but, you know, if someone has taken on a, a destructive behavior, how much of a balance is there between criticizing what they're doing versus empathizing with them and understanding and being part of that journey? Now, I know that's such a broad hypothetical question with no grounding in any sort of example, but... What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it's a difficult one. It's it's one that I think it's so difficult because it is sort of relative. I'm writing an article at the moment, actually, about sort of the the different impacts that different actions, different sins, and stuff can can have, and how that sort of means that we as individuals in society treat these different things differently. And I think that holds true here, but more broadly, to put a perhaps overly reductive, slightly simple answer to that question there. I am sort of reminded of the, I, I can't remember the specific verse, I can't remember the specific, you know, uh, passage, but I'm reminded of the part in the Bible where Jesus talks about if somebody is sinning, you know, first go to them by yourself and be like, hey, look, I'm not sure about this behavior, right? Like, I'm not sure about this thing that you're doing. That doesn't work. Go to them with friends. Be like, hey, you know, we're all worried about you. Maybe we need to reconsider this. And then if that doesn't work, then you start looking to more broader, bringing it to groups, trying to figure out a more broader, to be honest, societal, like how can society prevent this sort of act? That's the way, that's the way I view it because it, it is, yes, at first we should all, all, always be empathy, but we also do need to, if that fails, balance that with the needs of others and the needs of how it will be affecting others as well yeah great point and i think another feature of these kinds of stories as well is that they don't always feature redemption by the end like we'd expect in a classic hollywood structure that by the end if a character has been doing bad throughout the show or or movie that by the end they they have a final act of redemption whereas with some of these shows like succession is obviously ongoing but with breaking bad 
there was elements of redemption at the end, but there was more of a feeling of the things that had this person has been doing catching up to them in in this case justice at the end of the day their past misdiscretions have caught up with them it's a pretty interesting line that you mentioned in your article because you mentioned about justice how it's portrayed in the bible about the time that everyone can look forward to of when there will be no more death or pain or crying but also that in the meantime while we're on here on earth even though there is a curve towards justice under human guidance, this is what you quote, there is a curve towards justice under human guidance, but in the end, God will bend it towards his perfect plan, meaning that we'll never achieve true justice while we're on earth. Now, the question is then, Ryan, what's the point? Yeah, right. And that's that's a difficult one. It's a difficult question that I raise. The curve quote I'm talking about there specifically is from well, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., is quoting a famous pastor. For the arc of justice in the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It, it curves towards justice or something to that effect. And he, he was talking about the civil rights movement was working to make society better and working to make it more just and more equitable. That movement is an example of what we can we can aspire to when we talk about bending the curve on Earth as it is, because yeah, it, it would be naive to think that any one action, any one movement, any one thing will be able to create a perfect world on Earth. A, a perfect world on Earth is just not possible. Some people would say we could get close. I personally think, because of the nature of the world, it would be extremely difficult to even get sort of fully close to a perfect society. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think that's sort of one of the most interesting things about the example of Jesus, right? Jesus ultimately came in order to herald a future that we haven't yet reached um, and a future that was not reached in his time, you know, and even if he came tomorrow, it would be thousands of years after he came. But that didn't stop him from his actions and his his attitudes and his behaviours when he was around it didn't stop them from pushing towards bringing that a taste of that perfect world and that perfect society closer when we were here. He was somebody who spoke out against the powers that were corrupt at the time. He didn't let the social attitudes and perceptions around people who was good and who was bad, you know, to tie it back in. He didn't let that stop him from relating to and attempting to help and empathize with everybody. He didn't let anything get in the way of what he believed was a key to making that better world, which is, you know, sharing love, compassion and kindness uh, towards others. So I, I think just because the arc of justice is not going to reach its conclusion in our lifetimes doesn't mean that we should not ignore it, because if we attempt to help, what we can do is truly make things better for others here as well. And I think that that's something worth doing. I think that's important. I'm going to swing this into a, an even deeper direction. Well, we're dealing with moral ambiguity as well as injustice because I guess justice and injustice are defined as something that goes against morality, right? So the question is then, Ryan, where do we get our morality from? Now, for a lot of people, that will be from from the law 
from the governing law wherever you are at. But then that changes depending on what country you're living in, depending on what state you're living in. But then what is the common theme though? Is it just the aggregate of all of these different things? Is there something even older that we can go back to that helps us discover, I guess, what the true form of justice is? Yeah, it's it's a deep question. It's a question that philosophers and theologians and, you know, everybody almost at some point in their life have debated and discussed. It would be foolish to assume that I hold the, the definitive take and the definitive answer on it. But I think, personally, right, I believe that there is some moral absolutes and some true forms of, of right and wrong and, and justice in the world. And that's that's an opinion that not everybody shares. I, I have some friends that sort of say that ultimately what we believe is that way is only we only believe that because it is, you know, evolutionarily speaking, beneficial for us to believe that, which is a theory that has a lot of proponents and acceptance around the world. And it's there. But I tend to believe that there is something deeper. In an article I had to write for one of my subjects at university, sociology, so I was talking about, like, do we truly believe that, like, some cultures and societies are, like, more moral or better than others, or is it, is it all relative, right? And I think ultimately, when, when you get down to it, right, there's a lot of semantics in it, but I think ultimately the semantics can obfuscate the truth that there are some actions that we would all, regardless of where we got it from, deem, you know, moral or immoral. And, and that is what I would sort of cite as evidence that ultimately we, we all do agree that there is some primal accepted truths about what is right and wrong. Mm. And for me, right, knowing that and believing that fact what I view as getting them from, where I view them as getting them from, is through my faith in the Bible and in my belief in, in Christ, right? I, I believe that these sorts of things were placed as a way to improve life for everybody and, and to, to work towards that perfect world. Some others disagree, but that is that is where I view these things as coming from. They are the, they are the guideposts to a better tomorrow for us. Maybe we can unpack where those guideposts came from, essentially. Like, from my understanding, there was this dude called Moses, right? And he was given given by God these tablets, which had the original moral code. Now, it was uh, 10 points in there, and some people may be familiar with, with them as known as the Ten Commandments, right? Now, I think a lot of people may hold a bit of a a grudge towards the Ten Commandments because they kind of on paper seem like a bunch of rules, like a bunch of you don't don't do this or don't do that. But I've heard people say in the past, just analyzing these 10 points that God has given for us to live by, that the first four are essentially love. And the, the, the last six are also love. Just it's just that the first four are summarized by love God and the last six are summarized by love people around you, <laughs> like just going yeah, through them. Yeah. You know, don't have gods before me. Don't make yourself an image in the form of anything else other than me. Don't misuse my name. And remember the Sabbath day that I created for you can all be summarized by love and respect for God. And then the other ones, honoring your father and your mother, not murdering or committing adultery, stealing, 
giving false testimony against your neighbor or coveting your neighbor's stuff. Now, those are all love and respect towards your fellow person. But at the same time, it might seem so black and white that it's simple as love. But is it? Is that what true morality is at the end of the day? Like a true moral justness is love? Yeah. So, so there's, there's a few things to unpack there in that discussion of the Ten Commandments. And I, w- I want to go through sort of each of them in turn because, it, because I, I do think that they are a really important case study when we're talking about um, morality and if and how it exists. And, and, the, and the first is you, you said that I think a lot of people have a grudge against the Ten Commandments. I would, I would argue that I don't think too many people have a grudge against the Ten Commandments specifically because as you outlined, right, like they do ultimately seem to come down to love. I think some people might have a bit of a grudge against the first four because, you know, they don't believe in God and so they sort of view them as like, well, you know, not important. But I think most people believe in ultimately the parts of the Ten Commandments. Nobody wants to be stolen from. Nobody wants to be cheated on. Nobody wants their children to disrespect them if they have them. Nobody wants to I be murdered. I, yeah, nobody wants to be murdered. I think if we do see people chafing, it's against, like, so, you know, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by God. Uh, God also gave Moses a lot of other commandments for his people in their specific sort of situation, in their specific time. And it was, you know, when you're interacting with other other tribes in, in this, this time, you know, thousands of years ago, here are all the different rules. And a lot of people sort of see them and look at them and say that they are not, not as relevant in a modern context. And they would be correct um, in that, right? And that's why God gave us the Ten Commandments as sort of like the separate prime above all else rules that we should be following and that doesn't mean that all the old rules are you know completely pointless there are some things that we can still gain from them today and and when we look at them in their context and what they were trying to do in their context we can learn things from them but ultimately right what is important is those 10 and as you mentioned and it's something that jesus himself in the new testament if you look it up points out as well those 10 commandments are really the two commandments they're really two parts of one commandment love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's that as yourself part that's interesting, right? Because that comes back to like the, of course, you don't want to be killed. Of course, you don't want to be stolen. And I think that like, yeah, maybe it's a cop out, but it really does feel like to me that that is ultimately the simplest explanation for it. And, And the simplest explanation for like, what is good morals? It's love, but it's also that as yourself part, it's empathy. It's it's loving empathy because it is not just because love, right? If I love myself only, right? Arguably, that's not really love, but it's you know a selfish love, and it's a love that can end up hurting others, right? And that's why empathy is such an important part of love. And yeah, I, I think just the Bible, not only in the Ten Commandments, not only in Jesus's interpretations of the Ten Commandments which, you know, we can trust. He, he's kind of an expert on the topic. But but not only in that, but in other places, it also really works to emphasise that love is ultimately the basis for it all. There's the, my, my favourite passage in the Bible, arguably, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is all about love. And the, the final line of that, you know, it's talking about all the, all the things we have and it's, at the end all we have is faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Uh, even greater than faith, which is something that some people might find challenging. But like, I think that just highlights that 
Yes. <laughs> to, to answer your question, ultimately, yes, it, that is, it, it can really be that simple. I think this really has an interesting parallel to something that you mentioned in your article. You wrote this line that these anti-hero kind of pieces of fiction serve a purpose, and that purpose is that they, quote, place a mirror on our own actions and attitudes. And also, when I look at the Ten Commandments, it seems like that's exactly what it's doing too. And in some ways, it's humbling because you realize just how far we are from the ideal. On paper, then, I don't murder or don't commit adultery or I've never stolen, so therefore, I'm a good person. But once you really start to to delve down into what that actually means, like, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you know, going deeper into that commandment means putting yourself above your neighbor, then asking myself, how often do I put myself other, above other people? Like, I cannot honestly say that I am a truly 100% humble person. You know, if someone comes to me and needs something and I deny them that out of my own ego or out of my own selfish interests, I cannot say that I am 100% humble. And in mm. some ways, a lot of people, when they see themselves falling short of these commandments, that can be quite depressing. So does that just mean that we all suck <laughs> or is there hope? Well, I, I, I think, I think recognizing those issues through, through this stuff shows that there is hope to sort of contrast it with more traditional narratives, right? It, the metaphor of it being a mirror is, is interesting because if, Marvel movies and that sort of, and I keep going to that because, you know, that's the thing that's dominating the box office. That in many respects is like emblematic of, you know, the traditional hero's journey and everything. If those movies were mirrors, they are mirrors that only show us, for the most part, the best parts of ourselves, right? When we relate to the characters in that, we relate to the characters in that because they are sort of aspirational and they're, they're what we want to be like and they represent, you know, the best of humanity you know, Superman, you know, Captain America, Spider-Man, all of them, they're all like that. But the downside to that is that if we're looking at a mirror that only shows us our best parts, it's very unlikely that it's going to encourage us to improve on the less desirable parts of ourselves. Because we see those movies and we're, we're satisfied by them and we're like, yeah, humanity is good, it's great. Like, we're, we're like Spider-Man, we don't need to work on anything. I, admittedly, when I say it like that, I'm being slightly glib and it's a slight oversimplification of what those movies are. But it's, it's the core, the core truth there of like these movies don't ultimately convey much in the way of things to challenge us and make us think deeply and reflect on ourselves potentially on our flaws. And that's why the mirror here that sort of prompts us to think about those things and ask us those tough questions can be so helpful, I think, because when you see, it, it comes back to that tweet I mentioned uh, earlier of like, oh, no, I am just like Logan Roy or Shiv Roy or Walter White today, right? It makes us go, why am I acting like that? What, what can I do to change that? I don't want to be the guy that ruins his family because of his narcissism. And and so I think ultimately, right, like that's, that's why it can be positive and it can be a hopeful thing even if the content of these things themselves are not that positive or not that hopeful. Yeah, I think that's a, the fantastic point. At the very least, when we watch these TV shows, I think 
one thing you're really striking there is to watch these pieces critically and try and look for ourselves in them and not just laugh at it as if it's something that's disconnected or separate from ourselves. It's an even more honest look then at the Ten Commandments and really thinking about in what ways do we not love our fellow person? In what ways are we not loving God? And then wondering in what ways can we be more loving towards other people and bringing justice about in in that way. And so if anybody wants to do that and just check out those verses that we mentioned there, if you have a Bible around you, if you want to just jump online, bible.com, look up Exodus chapter 20 is the one where, where you'll find a lot of this stuff. And look, if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, even about what the concept of true justice is, we actually have a course, a free course that you can access. You can just go on to signsofthetimes.org.au slash contact or even just send us an email at info at signsofthetimes.org.au. But Ryan, I guess just finishing off on, on this discussion, is there anywhere else that you would also point people towards as far as looking to find a more complete idea of morality or justice? Do you think this is a great place to start or is there anywhere else that you would also like to encourage them to, to go look into? I think those are good places to start. I would also say if you're on the signed website, there's a there's a couple of other articles about it. If you just sort of type justice in the search bar, there should be a couple that are pretty pretty good on that. There's also one that I wrote that sort of aligns with the the part I was talking about at the end of the mirror and wanting to approve called improve called the necessity of being wrong. I also think that there's a there's a book, especially when it comes to finding clarity on what, you know, whether there is true morals or true justice in this world. There's a book by Abdul Murray called Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World, which I thought was was quite interesting. It, it's not perfect. I don't agree with, with all of his, his points on this matter, but I think that that's an interesting look at this sort of debate of is, is there objective morals, is there objective fact, stuff like that from a religious perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Ryan, for joining us on the the podcast and pointing us to some awesome resources. Look, dude, I hope you have a great time with with your folks and uh, indeed for the listener as well. Thanks so much for, for joining us on Science Radio, both to you and to the listener for this year and hope to see you in 2022. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.